Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about Watchmen and 2020 politics. And joining me to do that, we have Matthew William Brake, who is series editor of Theology and Pop Culture with Fortress and Lexington Press, as well as series editor for Religion and Comics uh, with Claremont Press. And he also runs a blog called Pop Culture and Theology. How's it going, Matthew? It's going pretty well. So clearly you are the right person to talk about Watchmen. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hope so. <laughs> well, you have, you have quite a bit of background in pop culture and in comics. What's your general sense on the original comic book series, the graphic novel Watchmen? Uh, I think it's great. It, it does a lot. To, in fact, a lot of different comics in the 80s did a lot to move the superhero genre forward. In fact, I think Doomsday Clock, I don't want to say it's sort of the peak of what the superhero genre can be, but um, it seems like everything that came after was simply trying to copy the success of things like Watchmen and mm. Dark Knight mm. Returns. There's a reason why Watchmen is still considered one of the greatest graphic novels of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it, it handles its story with a good bit of nuance, some good characterization. Uh, it makes you care about characters that you really only meet for the first time in the series. Right, um, and, and it was really resonant with both the politics of the mm-hmm. 1980s as well as where the comic book industry was at the time as well. Mm-hmm. And let's talk a little bit about that, because obviously I've set this up as a conversation about Watchmen and 2020 politics. And there's a reason for that, which we'll get to. But let's talk about the politics of the 80s in which this graphic novel came out. Obviously, you have the Cold War looming in the background of both the real life and the comic book storyline, right? And in the comic book storyline, in the midst of this kind of countdown towards the apocalypse, right, in which this kind of nuclear war is just going to lead to mutually assured destruction, right? You have these vigilante superheroes who are not actually superheroes per se. They're more like Cape Crusaders, right? They're just normal people who put on masks, um, which of course is a really interesting motif back in the comic book and in the HBO show, which we'll get to. But uh, you also have a Superman in Dr. Manhattan, who kind of has like a typical superhero origin story, you know, experiment gone wrong, and he becomes basically godlike. And I, I don't know if you would agree with this, but it seems to me like Watchmen in some ways is both a celebra- celebration and critique of the idea of Cape Crusaders and superheroes in, in its own right. Yeah, I think that's true. And if you read like recently, Alan Moore, the writer of the series, came out. And actually, you know, he, he criticized superheroes as being juvenile and all these other things. And then his daughter released a statement saying, like, look, my, my father loved superheroes. He loved these characters. He loved these ideas. He loved looking for old back issues. And he tried to do something interesting with the genre. And then he got screwed by the industry. So some of his mm. comments, she says, need to be taken in stride with, his bad experiences with people in the comic industry and with promises made that weren't kept particularly about Watchmen Mm -hmm. and his ability to get the rights to the characters back. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so I think Alan Moore was a fan of comics. He was a fan of the medium and he was a fan of superheroes, but he also recognized flaws in the concepts that if you added sort of a real world logic to them, the superhero could be, 
could end up really being a terrible person because mm-hmm. in the real world, if you and I get superpowers, like right. what does invisibility or mind reading look like to some weirdo like you and me? <laughs> totally. Right? Totally. That's a really great point. Yeah. And, and that's what we see in Watchmen. We see, you know, Rorschach, for example, as this kind of sociopathic, person who is committed to this kind of like justice enacting violence, um, which like if there was somebody like that in the real world, none of us would regard them as a superhero or, a, a, you know, we would not think that their intentions were good, regardless of, you know, what they what they themselves thought they were up to. And even even in the case of Dr. Manhattan, it's amazing how the superhero in the story, the Superman in the story, I should say, is not terribly interested in humanity, right? He's he he helps America win the Vietnam War, which becomes a huge well, it is a huge deal in the original comic, but it becomes probably developed a little bit more in the HBO show. Of course, one of the significant political implications in this alternative version of America of Dr. Manhattan helping uh, America win the Vietnam War is that Nixon is still president. He's on like his fifth term or something, something like that in the mid 80s. Yeah. And well, two things. One about Rorschach. We say that if this person existed in real life, we shouldn't like him. But for more, we're not supposed to like Rorschach, Mm. even as readers of the fiction. Like he's not meant to be the hero we root for. Mm. He's a sort of Ayn Rand Mm. objectivist Mm -hmm. who we are not supposed to think is the good guy. Mm-hmm. And yet everyone re I mean, I do it too. When I read Rorschach, I'm like, yeah, Rorschach, you yeah. crazy SOB. Go <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then of course, yeah, Dr. Manhattan is this superhuman whose superhumanity mm-hmm. almost makes him sort of the disinterested Ubermensch, mm-hmm. right? Like totally. Like, he's not going to negate humanity. He just ceases to be interested in humanity and sort of tries to avoid them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and you're right, he does change the outcome of the geopolitical situation. Like mm-hmm. this whole idea that superheroes have changed history. Right. Dr. Manhattan's existence causes the U.S. to win the Vietnam War, but also causes an imbalance in the Cold War, too. Like, mm-hmm. how much does it escalate the Cold totally. War if there's this omnipotent super being on the U.S. side? Totally. That's a great point. And that's a great segue to the kind of culminating aspects of the story, which is that you have this figure, Adrian Veidt. He's the smartest man in the world. He is just obsessed with power. And what we realize at the end of the graphic novel is that he's kind of been playing this chess game to kind of set up a plot to destroy New York City with this psychic squid monster thing in order to resolve the nuclear tensions that you're just describing because of Dr. Manhattan escalating the situation as well. That America and Russia would put down their kind of like common animosity towards each other and together would recognize that there's this external threat. And so Veidt had this this plan. And, you know, that's a major spoiler, obviously. But but in terms of what I want to build towards this idea that Veidt thought, right, that what would resolve the political turmoil and the political division would be mass tragedy. And so he plotted this whole thing and wiped out three million New Yorkers. To kind of pause for a second, think about what you just said about how Alan Moore is like, hey, we're not supposed to like Rorschach. There's something about how Rorschach 
Rorschach's story ends that does make me want to kind of think that he is something more like the moral compass in some ways uh, uh, for, for the reader, because he's like, no, you know, when they're in Antarctica and, and everybody re- it learns of the plot, he's like, no, we have to go tell everybody what just happened, that Vite just killed three million people. And Dr. Manhattan recognizes, no, 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 if this hoax gets out, then what Vite has just created will be destroyed. This utopia that he's creating will be destroyed. And so Dr. Manhattan kind of in a presumably unaffected way just kills Rorschach like right there as he's like racing to go tell the world about what really happened. So, I, I mean, I, I feel you on he's, he's a complicated and kind of awful person, Rorschach, but still there is something about that kind of um, stick-to-itiveness, like, no, 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 this is how it's supposed to be, that I do kind of think that, I don't know, that at least when I read it, I, I resonate with that. I, I'm Kantian enough to, like, hate the consequentialism of Manhattan and uh-huh. Vite and all that. So I, I hear you on that. I, I think the point, though, Alan Moore is making is even more of a meta. meta I don't think we're meant to have a moral compass in the story mm. because I think we're meant to be shown. I, I think the story is a tragedy, is more of a tragedy mm. than it is a morality tale. Sure, um, sure. And so I think, you know, with Rorschach, you know, you know, as we follow his journal, which come, which is the right. closest we get to something like a word, uh, a thought balloon. So even though everyone's like, there's no thought balloons in it, therefore it's postmodern because you just get everyone's perspective. You still sort of get sort of Rorschach's internal perspective. Yeah. Right. And we know that he's, you know, homophobic and all these other mm. things. Yeah. Yeah. He's like um, an alt-right. He's kind of like a, a, a nascent alt-right or maybe alt-right for the 80s kind of figure. Yeah. And, and, and then, of course, yeah, we, we have to ask, like, would it be good if he did tell everyone? Mm-hmm. Right. Because once once that cat's out of the bag, like mm-hmm. then the Cold War keeps escalating and now there's totally. no Manhattan to save the day. So I'm not sure if we're meant to really see him as moral compass so much as like how screwed up all these people are and mm. how this whole superheroes in the world thing yeah. kind of gives us no security. And hence the whole point of the Watchmen is who watches these guys exactly and exactly. gals like who exactly. watches these people? Exactly. Exactly. And and that's why when it when it does finally end with that kind of newspaper, like, you know, in this utopian setting, which I want to get back to the vibe of it all, but in that utopian setting, you know, out in the result of this horrific disaster and people are now unified and united, you have this newspaper company that's just like on hard times because they're like, we have no conflicts to write about. Like we have nothing to say to the world because everybody's having such a great time. And then there's just this one, you know, lackey at the, at, at the newspaper company who stumbles upon Rorschach's journal. And so you do get a kind of sense that Maybe it will unravel, right? Maybe maybe the plot will unravel. Or if we were to kind of step to the HBO show, we see at least in Damon Lindelof's interpretation of this, the the, the journal doesn't necessarily lead to kind of a, a mass recognition of what happened, but it does lead to a movement of these kind of alt-right Rorschach disciples, uh, which we could say more about uh, in, in, in just a bit. But I want to talk about the Vite, the Vite of it all. When... I think about American politics going into 2020. We all knew it was going to be a rough year. We didn't know how bad. We did not anticipate a pandemic and a racial reckoning and these sorts of things, right? But we knew it was going to be a rough year because of the American political situation. And that enough was was kind of like 
ominous, right? That that had its own ominous qualities. So whenever I would chat with friends about just kind of the lamentable aspects of our partisan climate, where it's not just that we're red and blue, it's like there's just this increasing polarization and and just extremes and vilification taking place. And it's it's really out of control. Whenever I'd have these chats with my friends about our current situation, whenever the topic of how are we going to get past this would come up, you know, what's going to be the catalyst for us moving back towards a bipartisanship? Can we move back towards a bipartisanship? Is there anything that can pull it off? Is it just time? Do we just have to wait a couple of decades? Like what's going to do it? And I would say, Frankly and sadly, I don't foresee it being possible unless there's an Adrian Veidt situation. And I hate saying that. I don't root for this. I just don't see us getting past our divisions without some kind of massive tragedy. And I would always bring up like we kind of saw that for a while post 9-11, right? We kind of saw this sort of unification take place, this sort of we're all Americans, right? And we all kind of rallied together. I just, um, frankly and sadly, I, I don't see us getting past our divisions with outside of tragedy, which I hate to say, but it just, it, I've always felt this way. And then here's, here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. This is how I felt going into 2020. And then COVID happens. And I started to think, because I've had these thoughts about a, the Adrian Vite of it all, not from a conspiracy standpoint, but from a, wait, is this going to be the thing? Is this going to be the thing that like, unites us that we're going to you know be able to kind of come together and i mean we're in october now and my goodness of course that is not what happened it became part of the partisanship this tragedy that this global tra- tragedy that could have united us became a further wrenching apart which was uh, just sad to think that it couldn't have been the unifying thing that i had suspected we we needed it almost makes you think of Gerard's idea that there are no more viable scapegoats. Mm. Like, like, the, like the pandemic could have been the scapegoat that the tragedy, the death, the thing that united us, right? And like mm. we, like it wasn't enough to quell the conflict, right? Mm. And so, um, whereas at nine eleven, for at least a little while, we had a scapegoat. Mm. But even even the sort of post nine eleven unity ran into problems because eventually you had this divide between. Republicans and Democrats, and and then everyone starts to you know defend their own side, whether or not they're right, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think one problem here is that you know Republicans, in particular, because their base is more monolithic, mm-hmm. it's very easy to create unity in the base mm-hmm. by creating an enemy. And so the second mm-hmm. the Democrats said, "Yes, we will believe the top scientists of infectious mm-hmm. diseases," we will lend our ear towards Black Lives Matter and like the very real systemic issues they're pointing to, then what happened is like every other thing that happens in in American politics is that then the conservatives know they can rile up a base by conservatives, Republicans, they're at the GOP can rile up their base by speaking again. I mean, it's like climate change, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, the majority say this, but you're always going to have those people on the right who end up pulling out either from think tanks that are obviously already leaning right 
that are mm-hmm. like, you know, the Heartland Institute or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, which is going to always pull out data that supports the opposing views as well. Actually, climate change isn't that bad. Well, smoking might not kill you. Uh-huh. Well, masks aren't that big of a deal. Like you uh-huh. always end up with that dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where I, I would love to talk about polarization in the U.S. as though it was like two equal sides polarizing. Mm. But I, I can't I can't I don't think that kind of centrism helps because mm. I I think it's sad that there is that division. I just wish things that it wasn't over things that we should all be able to agree on. Like, OK, mm. we want to talk about tax policy. Yeah. Like and whether or not, you know, pro growth, lowering capital gains causes greater economic growth that might trickle down or Mm -hmm. whether we think, you know, social security needs to be a guarantee or partially privatized, like, Mm -hmm. and having good faith reasons for thinking that. Right. But if we're looking at, you know, issues of climate change, when, you know, when the majority of scientists say that climate change is real, right. Right. And you have one of the guys on the in the congressional committee for science being like, well, I'm not going to trust a bunch of guys who are writing to keep their jobs. Mm. i.e. scientists due to climate change it's like dude yeah. you're a politician who's literally catering to your base right now right right like right. like and same thing with systemic racism like mm-hmm. you know all you need to do is read the new jim crow once mm. and it will convince you that systemic racism is a thing right, right. you know wearing masks you mm-hmm. know the, the problem with the democrats is they're willing to listen mm-hmm. to voices who claim to be oppressed and they're willing to listen right. to the scientists Right. And the GOP knows that they can stir up support for themselves by creating this antagonism. And it's not that the DNC doesn't suck, because it absolutely does. <laughs> um, but for different reasons, I think, than mm. the RNC mm. does. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you that we're polarized. And polarization, like there's a trend globally towards tribalism. It's not just the U.S. And there's a right, trend right. towards nationalism, xenophobia, fascism, mm-hmm. um, and it, and it would be nice if the tragedy would unite us. How, how many people then would like blame, how many, you know, Obama birthers or truthers yeah. would we get saying that it's fake? Right. You know, 9-11 has people saying that it was an inside that's, job. That's true. That's true. Right. And, and so, you know, I, I like the Star Trek model when like you have the Vulcans come down and it's like a, it's like a positive version of that. Like, oh, we can, it's a very humanistic and it's a very humanistic version that assumes the best of humanity. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it still plays on that same idea where maybe some alien threat or peaceful envoy will unite us. And I, I still think we'll find reason, you know, even C.S. Lewis, you know, would talk about how, like, if we did find alien life, they mm-hmm. would soon find out we are corrupt. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Well, you know, and it's, and it's interesting, too, the way that Damon Lindelof and, and his team of writers took the graphic novel and turned it into an HBO show last year, which, you know, this past summer uh, won tons of awards. It was nominated, I think, for 26 Emmys, won 11 of them. It's an excellent show on HBO. And it's very much a kind of continuation. There's, you know, some question about is it a sequel or not? And I'd love to have the whole conversation about is it canon? Is it fan fiction? But, you know, let's let's think about where they take it in terms of the squid. Because of course the squid is actually a conspiracy for which conspiracy theories is legitimate because it is a hoax, right? So it's interesting to actually have the sort of, you know, it's all an inside job sort of thing at the heart of this because 
one of the things that's really interesting about the HBO show as as far as it connects back to the original graphic novel is how Vite is continuing to drop these squid showers around the world to sort of remind people and keep people in check about this alien threat to sort of continue to foster and perpetuate a, a striving towards unity which I find just super interesting and at the at the heart of that storyline is a character named Wade who is also looking glass you know the guy who wears the reflective mirror mask or whatever who was near the blast when it happened back in 80, 85 uh, in, in, in New Jersey. He was very close to where it all happened in New York City. And he's been haunted by this experience and is kind of one of these like doomsday apocalyptic guys who, you know, is constantly buying all the right equipment to like save himself should this happen again sort of thing. And when he finds out that this was all you know, a hoax. It's a, it's, it is really interesting to also think about it from that perspective of conspiracy, because that this is, you know, a conspiracy for which conspiracy theories are legit. And it's interesting how, how we see it play out in this, in their version of Watchmen, where you do have these different groups that emerge like the Rorschach group, which they're on the alt-right, but they're the ones who know that it's, that it's a mess, you know, it, it's kind of, kind of flips the conspiracy uh, script a bit. Yeah, and, it, and it's amazing too, how much Rorschach's journal doesn't necessarily play a part. Like it's literally a video of bite himself telling everyone what happened. Right. Right. And then saying, president Redford, here's something yeah. you should know. Right. Um, and then getting rejected too. Right. Like whatever his plan was, wasn't accepted. Right. But it is funny that it's Byte himself who you have these members of this Rorschach, uh, the, the, the Calvary. Seventh Calvary, yep. Seventh Calvary. I almost called them the White Calvary, which would also be right. <laughs> which but, would also work, yep. You know, you have these insider politicians who know that and who are then influencing this Seventh Calvary group. You probably also probably watched OAN and heard something about Rorschach. Rorschach's yeah, journal. yeah. Um, but like, you know, that you have this alt-right, consp- you know, and, and the, pr- the problem of there, of course, the problem there is that, and I think this is brilliant on Lindelof's part, that the conspiracy theory is in some ways right. Exactly. That, that all is not what it, meant, what it seemed to be. And yet the response to that truth and to that fact mm. is still wrong. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. No, that's, uh, yeah, that's totally fascinating. But of course, the new HBO show, what is brilliant about it is just like how the 1986 graphic novel, which was set in 85, was so like embedded in its political situation. We see that again with this HBO show, which is set in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and which very poignantly addresses current racial issues, policing issues that we're facing today, and which have only been exasperated further in 2020. I mean, obviously, if, if you watch the HBO show and you, and you hear that it was made in 2019 and, and you think it's prescient, that would not be accurate because, my goodness, uh, this has been an issue for a long time. But man, the relevance of the Watchmen show, of course, I think on, on many people's minds has only become sort of further heightened. And I think 
it's not lost on me that, you know, it's in 2020, the year about hindsight, right? That nostalgia, right? That we would look back on other people's experiences and and be able to understand a little bit more. And I think for many, 2020 has been that kind of illuminating, awakening sort of thing for us that we've that we've really needed. I, I'm curious, you know, getting to the racial issues of, of, of Washington, there's a lot of roads that we could go down. I'm curious, let's just get right into it. What do you think about hooded justice? Well, real quick, I wanted to just affirm what you said about having watched Watchmen mm-hmm. and seeing like the the play between issues of the police and race and so on and 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 white supremacy and all these other things. Uh, it's actually interesting. There was another uh, item that came out in 2019, the Spider-Man PS4 game. At one point during it, um, there's a deadly disease released in New York and everyone's walking around wearing masks. Like I, I picked it up the other day and started playing. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like this is, wow. it was like that moment where I was realized this should seem strange, but why am I used to this site? And like everyone's wearing masks. And then you have like this private security firm, which is then violating people's civil rights. and like you know, having these police checkpoints because there's violence in the city and everything. And I was just like, wow, like th- this isn't out of the ordinary, like it should be this actually, mm-hmm. this, this makes sense to me. Right. 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 Yeah. The hood of justice thing I thought was interesting because, you know, in the original graphic novel, and I believe in before Watchmen, which was this prequel series that it, I've never read and heard wasn't that good. Hooded justice. Everyone thought he was, he was still, he was still gay, but he, everyone thought he might be actually a Nazi. Oh. And so it is, and it's, it, they reference it. Too. Oh, that, that's a great tie in with, with his dad going off to, to war and all that and coming back and it's kind of that propaganda of like Germany, like, Hey, you know, you're not really valued in your homeland. So come, come be with us. Yeah. And, and, and so, I mean, it, it's cool that they, they invert that and you find out it's actually a black man who's under the hood and they play, mm. ga- they play games with the noose and all that stuff. Yeah, of course. Um, and, and they reference this actually in the show because one of the clever things I think Lindelof does is they have that documentary mm-hmm. in the TV show mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the same way that they had the tales from the black freighter in the original right. comic book. Right. And they, and they play on like, you're reading a comic, you're reading a comic within a comic and now you're watching a show within a show. Totally. But they reference that, that, you know, this guy was found dead face down in the water. Mm. Everyone thought the comedian killed him. And then you find out that it's actually, you know, Hooded Justice was actually a black man. And I think, mm. I think Lindelof and the writers team did some really interesting ret- uh, retconning there. Mm-hmm. And I thought it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it, I thought it really, uh, it really worked in the way that he was trying to, uncover this decades long white supremacist conspiracy. I thought it was mm-hmm. really brilliant. What I really like about it is the continuity of it all, because, you know, of course, when you think about the original graphic novel, Dr. Manhattan um, is kind of this figure that kind of bridges the the, the, the groups of Minutemen and, and Watchmen. Um, and of course, there's some generational connections too with like Silk Spectre and all that. But you have this kind of single figure that sort of connects these two groups of of these generations of of cape crusaders and what i like about hooded justice uh, the hooded hooded justice of it all is that he really then spans the entirety of the show uh, or or i should say the the graphic novel plus plus the hbo show and kind of connects 
connects to um, what we're seeing in a way that I think it's more organic than than just like, okay, now we're taking up a new, you know, this Regina King character. Now we're just we're following a new character altogether. I, I just like the kind of organic continuity of Hooded Justice behind it all. Yeah. And even how they carry on with this idea of how superheroes have affected the world. Like mm. one of the cool parts I, I enjoyed at the beginning was seeing how the police chief was in the owl ship, like, yeah. a, or at least a copy of the owl ship. Exactly. You know, so this, this tradition of superheroes ends up affecting the police where they're now adopting some of those tactics. I mean, even in the fact that they wear masks. Including, yeah. I was just going to say, including masks. Right. Which becomes interesting, especially when you consider that the police chief has a KKK, his grandfather's KKK outfit in his closet. Right. Be- because there's an interesting connection that can be made between the KKK and superheroes. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's in the article by Chris Gavalier. The Ku Klux Klan and the Birth of the Superhero. It's uh, an article in the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. Mm-hmm. And one of the things Gavalier shows is how much the tropes of late 19th century, early 20th century, KKK, whether it's the secret identity, the symbol that you wear on your chest, Mm -hmm. the fact that you're trying to round up crime, those are all tropes that directly impact the superhero, even though the superhero is then, especially in the early years, Superman, for instance, is turned into a working class hero Mm. and eventually even fights the KKK, although by then that I think it's the second wave of the KKK. I think they were in decline, but mm. there's this direct influence of the KKK on the very concept of the superhero. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that you even have that connection there between the KKK and the superhero, I think is super interesting. And you, you know, even something like the boys, have you been watching the boys? Oh, I haven't yet, but that's on my list. You know, the boys, the boys is to Watchmen what, Game of Thrones is the Lord of the Rings. Like okay, one of them, okay. one of them will always be king. Mm-hmm. But you know, you sort of have this like newer '90s, 2000s, edgier take that plays on some of these things that come from an earlier era. But they they play on that too with the origin of superheroes being founded. Spoilers, by the way, <laughs> being founded in the Nazi regime. Mm. And so this this there's a close connection between white supremacy, fascism, and the superhero mm. with a lot of these writers talking about how like superheroes are inherently a little fascisty. Mm. Like they're just, there's just that little bit of fascism in there. Yeah. And gene, at least from a genealogical standpoint, you can sort of trace back that connection. That is really fascinating. So, so hearing you talk about that one, th- one connection that immediately comes to mind is the Ubermensch, Nietzsche's Ubermensch and, and then thinking about the Superman uh, and how Superman was a kind of anti, you know, sort of not Nazi figure. He's, he, there's all these Moses tropes about, you know, Superman and, and his survival, right. When his planet's destroyed and him coming to earth and all of that. So there's this kind of Jewish sort of response to the Ubermensch idea and this kind of creation of this like Ubermensch through the Aryan race sort of thing, right? Which that's kind of like one of the first thing that that comes to my mind as I you know hear about what you just said, which I think is super super interesting. But I'd like to chat about the Ubermensch of the HBO show, and I'm curious to know what you think about kind of the way that they 
play with the mythology of Dr. Manhattan. They kind of, there's, there's some things about Dr. Manhattan that are unique to the HBO show. Like this idea that he could pass off his powers through an edible substance like an egg, uh, which is really, really, really interesting. Uh, but also this, uh, this kind of canonic idea that he could relinquish his powers through, of course, it's a device that Adrian Veidt created, but still, this is unique sort of mythology about Dr. Manhattan, that he could sort of become an, a, a normal human person. And I think there's some question about his sentience in that, like who is sort of operating Cal? You know, is it Dr. Manhattan uh, sans powers or is it some other kind of agent? I'm just curious what you think about the mythology of Dr. Manhattan in the HBO show. Yeah, well, I think there are a number of interesting things you could pull out. I mean, if you're looking for an Ubermensch, you know, Dr. Manhattan literally says, eh, humans, they're fine. I'm not going to negate them, uh-huh. but I'm going to go over here exactly. and just affirm life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then you have this element of time. Like, if you've ever wondered what Augustine means or Augustine means by the eternal now, Dr. Mm-hmm. Manhattan literally experiences everything as now. Right, right. And is weirdly able to communicate across time through that. Totally. And, and, and that's an expansion on the graphic novel where... There's that scene where he, he is on the moon with Silk, Silk Spectre. He's like, you're about to tell me you slept with John. Right. And she's like, what? And then eventually she says it, and he's like, you slept with John? Like, <laughs> and so I, I feel like Watchmen expanded that idea. Um, obviously, elements of kenosis, you can definitely throw that out there. Uh, I think when it comes to the Cal, the identity question, I would see it as, an, as Dr. Manhattan with amnesia. Mm. Like, I, I, I don't see it, although that, and, and this is just because I'm not like a identity person, like in terms mm. of like philosophical, metaphysical questions, that's, that's sure. never been like a huge interest of mine. Sure, sure, sure. So I'm sure for someone for whom it is a, it is an interest, like, you know, how do you know that, you know, the cow with amnesia is the same as Dr. Manhattan when he fully remembers, mm-hmm. especially since he says that there's this period that he can't see. So is it even mm-hmm. him? And right. then we start, we could talk about all perception and the ability to have this continual stream of self mm-hmm. uh, and what happens when that stream is interrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's an interesting question. The identity one isn't as interesting, isn't uh, just an area that I, I, I delve into too much, but I think that other issues like his relationship to time, especially mm-hmm. uh, is very helpful, especially for our open theist friends who mm-hmm. read Augustine there and go, that's a stupid idea. Like, no, no, now we have a way to imagine it. Look, there's, I mean, there's I, I, I mean, I'm sort of open theist myself. The, the other aspect of Dr. Manhattan in Damon Lindelof's version of Watchmen that I think is really interesting is how Damon Lindelof very commonly fixates on deities as normal people. So we see that in Loss with the kind of Jacob and the the man who was not named or the man in black or Esau or whatever you want to call him, right? They're just dudes who happen to be demigods who live on an island, you know? And similarly in The Leftovers, I love how you have that God character who's just on the cruise ship and he's got this like post-it note that on one side is just a list of responses to frequently asked questions like, yes, I'm divine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Evolution is true, but it didn't happen the way you think it does. Like, you know, all this stuff. It's just a dude on a cruise ship. Like Damon Lindelof is kind of obsessed with this idea from that, you know, that 
kind of that song, you know, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, stranger on a bus, whatever. I think Lindelof is obsessed with this idea. And, I, and I've read in interviews, it's largely because of The Wizard of Oz, just this idea of, you know, the man behind the curtain is just a man, right? And I think it's really interesting. It's very Lindelofian to, to kind of make Manhattan a dude, you know what I mean? Like to take the God character in the story and just make him a man, like the kenosis of it to me feels just fully in step with how Lindelof treats the divine, basically. Yeah, and I think that, and that's what makes Watchmen, even in this adaptation, a very postmodern ep- And I love postmodernism. I mean, postmodernism is great. I, I love postmodernism, but, you know, it, it ends up, you know, I'm reading, I'm teaching through uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman right now, Ooh, another great beautiful. 80s work. Yeah. And, and one of the things Gaiman said, you know, we were reading through uh, a game of view, which, which has this, trans character named Wanda Hmm. who is barred from going on this journey with a group of women because the gods don't recognize Wanda as a woman. Hmm. And and so this created some flack for Gaiman, although, you know, Gaiman, you know, in interviews, particularly the Sandman companion is like, look, I was on Wanda's side Hmm. because the gods are just other people with opinions. And so there's Hmm. this, postmodern angle on the like the god's perspective is literally just their own perspective there's no transcendent god's eye view or guarantee or whatever because even the gods themselves are contingent right and so yeah i i yeah the idea of making god a dude that that, that definitely ma- makes uh lindelof i mean that's that's sort of a postmodern angle yeah to lindelof's yeah and speaking of lindelof making god a dude he may have also made God a dudette at the very end of the story. How do you, yeah. how do you interpret the ending? Well, I'm actually, the thing that I really want to go back and look at with that ending and maybe do some work on is looking at the symbolism of the egg. Mm-hmm. Because with the egg, you get, you know, religious studies 101, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a symbol of rebirth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have this whole idea of like the cosmic egg mm-hmm. that, you know, the universe springs from. and so. The fact that Regina King's character becomes Manhattan, I mean, it, it, is, it is cool that you have this, you know, sh- this strong black female character, mm-hmm. fully fleshed out, very well done. And I think it's because Lindelof actually had a very diverse writing room. Like, Yes, he did. Right. And, and so you have this great, so I, I think that's great, but I, I was personally had been fixated on that idea that it's the egg that did it, that birthed this new thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, it's almost like the shack, right? Like God the Father is a is a black woman, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and so dealing with some issues of representation. Although, you know, he he even does that here because, you know, whereas Doctor Manhattan's John Osterman is a is a white right. man, we see him know, as th- Cal. Yeah, yeah. Then he becomes a black guy. Yeah, uh, you know what I mean. Like he becomes yeah. a strong black, you know, yeah. strong black man. You know, and then he goes from being this strong black man to this, you know, strong black woman. Right. right. That is that is really fascinating. And I'd like to talk about their initial encounter when he first meets her in Saigon. I think it's lovely the way that he puts on a mask of of Dr. Manhattan. And, you know, and I love the way that Angela just, you know, is sort of engaging him as if he's like a huge fan of Dr. Manhattan. I got strong vibes of the Cupid and Psyche myth. Did you catch anything like that about their initial encounter? I, I wish I could say I'm a uh I'm not the most literary, literature-inspired guy, so I, I, I can't go with you to Cupid and Psyche. All I would say that 
that stood out to me is just this idea that the gods hide hide their faces from from us. Uh, and so so this idea that Dr. Manhattan doesn't reveal himself, he's wearing a mask of himself, which is just fascinating sort of hiding in plain sight kind of kind of deal it, it's just an interesting sort of thing because basically in the cupid and psyche myth like cupid like doesn't want to reveal himself but anyways i got just got some vibes of that story i'm i'm, I'm, I'm so not any sort of classics person <laughs> so i'm unfortunately i'm the last person to talk to you about uh well norse myth maybe but greek myth mm-hmm. i i'm sadly I'm faintly familiar, but just enough to make conversation. That's, that's all right. You, it's all right because you're conversant in American myth and pop cultural mythology. So we got that. Boom. <laughs> Perhaps as a as a way to kind of conclude and wrap up, since we're we're talking about Watchmen in 2020 politics, one of the things that we see in the HBO show is this kind of bureaucracy around police violence, specifically as it pertains to whether or not they can use their weapons. It's a big part of the opening of the 2019 storyline is this kind of bureaucratic sort of call-in that this police officer has to do before he's authorized to use his gun on a suspected 7th Calvary member. And that this this show came out in 2019. And those of us who are watching it and re-watching it and thinking about it in a post-George Floyd world, obviously this raises a lot of interesting thoughts for us about the way people are talking about defunding the police and these sorts of things. We see a huge, huge dynamic in the Watchmen show that that feels really relevant to the kinds of things that we're thinking about now throughout the country and world even more broadly. Yeah, I, I think there's an interesting convergence of three or four different elements in Watchmen. One, the issues related to forgotten Black history, forgotten Black like, oppression in the U.S., like the Tulsa, I'm not even call it, I think it's officially the Tulsa race rap. I'll call it the Tulsa massacre, which, which I only learned about by watching Watchmen. Mm-hmm. And that you have all of these glossed over stories that don't get acknowledged that still end up having a systemic effect through descendants, whether it's something like epigenetic trauma mm-hmm. or whether it's something like wealth gaps or this continual dynamic within Black history where there's this progress made and then this sort of white oppression or white pushback. Right. So you have that dynamic happening. You have the dynamic of white militias and the police, except in this world, the historic injustice is acknowledged, reparations are given, mm-hmm. and so the white militias turn on the police. Right. Police themselves are constricted in their, the use of their weapons and can only use their weapons if authorized, which I'm sure, you know, like I'm, I'm sure plenty of people wish that that was the case. However, I, I don't want to, you know, because I was thinking about how police were talked about along with firefighters and EMTs after 9-11. Like, the police are a part, you know, while, while there might be systemic injustices in society, and even in the formation of the police, because they also form out of these groups that would track down runaway slaves, too, like mm-hmm. police, like historically. You know, you have these public services that they do perform, but then they're also increasingly militarized, their discretion is cut, they're mm-hmm. incentivized to rage to wage the drug war. You know, when I say defund the police, I mean stop encouraging them to wage mm-hmm. the drug war. Right. Like don't let them get millions of dollars from the federal government because they've waged the drug war. Shut that down. Mm-hmm. Don't let them get funding for that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think I want to, I, I'm not a, a fool on abolish the police because I think they can serve to protect. Um, although of course my critical theory friends will ask protect too. And yeah. I, I affirm that question. I, right. Right. But I think there are practical ways that police have do have and do serve this country and that when they're at their best, they can do some really good things. But I also think there are ways in which they're trained and in which they talk and are told to interact with the public where they they treat the public like it's a war like they're a soldier in a war zone Mm -hmm. uh fighting an enemy and i think that that's not going to be conducive to public engagement so i I, you know with all those things you know and i I say all that because you sort of see the problem with there being too much bureaucratic red tape for Mm -hmm. a cop being able to protect their life but in the real world we also see what happens when a cop has too much qualified immunity and can get away with too much and there needs to be greater accountability. And so I I think it's interesting that you see that confluence of dynamics, forgotten racial history, reparations, white militias, cops, the greater regulation of the use of deadly force, Mm -hmm. I think is good. And yet we also see the problem with that, that, you know, this cop is killed because he isn't able to reach for his weapon. And I, I do think that's important. And that's, I think cops can serve a useful function, but I do think that that has to be a part of an overall conversation about imagining how to do public safety different than we have, Mm -hmm. which is a lot of what the defund the police conversation is about. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe a cop has a social worker too, so that that way you have a social worker present so that you don't end up with cops shooting a man telling them this guy has autism. You can't, you can't Mm. police him like you would someone without autism. You can't. I guess I just appreciate that Lindelof shows the complexity of these issues. You know, as mm-hmm. someone like Cornell West will say, human beings are complex. Like, mm-hmm. and this is why he's not, West isn't very big on canceling people or whatever, because mm-hmm. humans are complex. They have complex thoughts and feelings. They're not black and white. And so I appreciate showing the complexity of the issues. But I think if you watch Watchmen, I don't think you walk away thinking that it's like anti. Black Lives. I don't mm-hmm. feel like you get the impression that it's anti-police. Mm-hmm. Like I think it shows a very complex world, a world as complex as the one we live in that mm-hmm. doesn't get solved by any sort of black and white morality, but is rather a tragedy like mm-hmm. our own world. Right. And as the original Watchmen was, as we discussed. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Well, this has been a great conversation. And I think, of course, what this illustrates is just how politically charged and relevant Watchmen is. It was super relevant back in the 80s, and it's very relevant today. And and for those of our listeners who have made it this far without having engaged either, I think, uh, well done, first of all. But second of all, you really ought to read the graphic novel, uh, skip the Zack Snyder film, perhaps, uh, and then uh, go watch the HBO TV show. It's quite brilliant. You know, we're recording this just before the November 3rd election. And of course, I am immediately reminded of the tragedy of the original graphic novel took place on November the 2nd, which in the HBO show is referred to commonly as 112, sort of like the way that we refer to 9-11. That tragedy will hang in our in our minds and hopefully November 3rd will not be anything like uh, 112. Let's pray for that because uh, my goodness, it's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not looking good right now. I should mention 11-2 is uh, also my birthday. Thankfully, <laughs> yeah. 
And, and, and so thankfully I wasn't born in 85 because that would be traffic. I was born in 84, so the year before, but one more year before the squid hit. But, oh, yeah. wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, this has seriously been wonderful. Uh, thanks for joining us. It's been a delightful conversation. Happy to be here. If you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from The Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on The Two Cities Podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.